privilege to be able to worship our Lord um, this Lord's Day. Let's actually begin this morning by reading our passage in its entirety. It'll be Romans, Romans chapter 13. Still working our way through the, the letter to the Romans. Romans 13. We'll begin in verse 8 and work our way through the rest of the chapter. This is the word of the living God. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we come not above your word this morning, not even alongside your word this morning. We come under your word this morning. God, we pray that, that you would move in this place by your spirit, um, that, you would, that you would change us, that you would transform us from one degree of glory to another into the image of your son. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Mark, can you grab my water? Thanks. So, so have, have you, have you ever had a, a life changing, um, encounter with someone sitting next to you on an airplane? Anyone? Yeah. All right. One. So, so I was once traveling back to Denver from Dallas and I sat next to this older gentleman, gentleman, really small guy, big smile on his face. He, he was dressed like a, a hippie coming home from Woodstock. He seemed harmless. Maybe. I get a chance to preach the gospel to him. So I thought we said hello to each other. And then we both, we both pulled out our theology books. It wasn't long before we put our books down and we began a conversation, a conversation that I will never forget. Come to find out I was sitting next to one of the premier evangelical scholars in the area of spiritual formation, Christian growth, Dr. Evan Howard. So for the next two and a half hours, I peppered this dude with so many questions. My jaw just dropped, dropped on the floor the entire time. What was most shocking for me about this conversation was not his theology, but it was his lifestyle. Here was a guy who, after finishing his, his PhD under Wayne Grudem and, 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 and getting his first job at a seminary, he decided with his wife pretty early on in their marriage to live right under the poverty line so they could be consumed with kingdom business. So after purchasing some cheap land in Montrose, Colorado, years ago, they, they built their home using the land's resources. 
And because they were not going to be joining in on the rat race of the American dream, Evan would write books, teach one class a semester online, and they would devote their time and their energy to their local church, their community, their neighbors, their family. But it gets better than that. Of course, I had to ask this spiritual formation guru about his own spiritual formation. Like, what does your walk with the Lord look like on, let's say, Tuesday? Before he began, he told me, just know, Rick, this isn't for everyone. He wanted to make sure I understood the gospel. Um, that, that, that his lifestyle wasn't in any way earning him favor or right standing with God. But he begins each day early in the morning as he goes to his underground cave. Yes, he built a cave on his property. His place to meet with God. He doesn't even allow himself a cup of coffee until after this meeting with the Lord. In this underground candlelit cave, no matter the weather, he gets on his knees and seeks the face of God, reading the Bible in its original languages, spending time singing hymns and reciting creeds, praying prayers, meditating on scripture. He spends time in solitude with God. And of course, he intercedes for those in his own life and for the advancement of the kingdom. And then after about three hours, he comes into the house and makes himself a cup of coffee and begins his day. If, if, if there was one thing, if there was one thing I learned from Evan in that conversation on the airplane was this, this brother today is living in light of a future day. Anyone in here ever read Jonathan Edwards' resolutions? Anyone? Couple? Okay. You guys should do it online. It's free. It takes about 10 minutes. Right? He, 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 he would laugh at my resolve to lose 10 pounds before summer. I want you to just listen to a couple of them. He was 19 years old when he penned these. And it's interesting how so many of his resolutions have, have a future orientation as a way to motivate a current godly life. So for instance, number 52. Yes, number 52. He had 70 resolutions. Quote, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Or number nine. Resolved to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Number 50, resolve that I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. Or number 19, this will be the last one, resolved never to do anything, anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be more than an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. Now, these guys are intense, right? Like, like inspiring, but like next level gnarly. And I, I think we, we love hearing stuff like this. At least I do for some motivation. But to actually live like this, man, I'll pass. 
right? Let me just rest in the freedom that I have in Christ. Now, praise God for the freedom that the gospel does bring. If if there's been one thing that has been crystal clear from the letter to the Romans, it's this. That that we we are justified, made right with God based on nothing we bring to the table. It is Christ and Christ alone, his sinless life and atoning death on our behalf. God shows his love for us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And now as he reigns as Lord through his resurrection and ascension, those who by faith alone in King Jesus alone are his people, his bride, his church. This is us. But the question the church has been asking for 2,000 years and continues and should be asking is how then shall we live? How then shall we live? I don't know about y'all, but it's easy to hear stories of radical disciples, past and present, and just shrug it off. Like, hey, Christianity is actually very ordinary. I'm good. And I think that's right. Like you don't have to go home this afternoon and build a cave in your house and become a a modern day monk to follow Christ. But I believe our passage is going to ask us a question this morning. And that's this. Do you live like the end is near? This morning, I believe Paul is going to argue that the life well lived is the future oriented life. That we ought to live today in light of a future day. So if you close your Bibles, open it back up to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We're finishing off this section that started back in Romans 12.1 of Paul's general exhortations to this Jew and Gentile church. And Paul's going to get really specific into the Roman church context starting next week. But today he's still encouraging these Christians and us with what it looks like to present our bodies to God. Like he said in Romans 12.1. This is Paul's Christian Life 101. So let's see how the word of God this morning is calling us to live. We'll have, we'll have three movements to our text this morning. First, living by love. Second, living with urgency. And third, living in holiness. Living by love, living with urgency, and living in holiness. So first, living by love. Look at verse 8. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, Paul's motivation for this passage to live future-oriented lives will, will, will come up in our second point. And that actually holds this entire passage together. But before we get to that motivation, let's understand what Paul is asking of this church. Owe no one anything Except to love, he says. Paul's command to love in this section is not even a new idea. Just a few verses back, Romans 12, 9 and 10, he says, Let love be genuine. Let love be sincere. Be devoted to one another in love. Now he's back to this law of love. So for for Paul, love is a big deal. This is like the Mount Everest of commands for the follower of Christ. 
And Paul is building off of what he said last section about submitting to the government. Look at how that passage ended again. Verse 8, or sorry, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So what Paul is saying here, what he's picking up from verse 7, is that as you gladly obey God by paying your taxes, paying your revenue, paying your respect, paying your honor, you owe no one anything because you've done all your pain. You're paying your mortgage. You're paying your rent. You're paying your respect and honor for your government and anyone else in authority over you. You're, you're paying your taxes, so on and so forth. Owe no one anything. This is not just a verse out of context to make sure no one owns a credit card. Sorry, Dave Ramsey. But then Paul says, wait, you actually do owe one thing. To love each other. What Paul is saying is that Jesus gives us, his church, a love credit card. It has no spending limit. And even if your credit isn't great, if you're a Christian, you get one. And you literally can't max it out. But you also never pay it off. None of us can say we've loved enough. So we just keep racking up that bill. Love, love, love. Early church father Origen said, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love, a debt which should be with us always and never cease. We must pay this daily and always owe it. Verse nine and following Paul begins to explain what he means by that last phrase in verse eight. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Look at verse nine. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, listing for the Ten Commandments. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting one of those commandments from Leviticus 19. And then he finishes by saying, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul's saying, when you love you fulfill the old covenant law. Just like we learned a few chapters ago. Remember our our hourglass illustration? The entire old covenant is pointed to Christ and, and finds its culmination, its end in him. And so every law in the old covenant finds its fulfillment in Christ through the love of his people. And I know someone in here is probably thinking, yeah, but didn't Paul say somewhere in this sermon series that we aren't under the law? And he did. That was Romans 6.14. You're not under the law, but under grace. So you may be thinking, well, okay, um, why, why, why is it important that we fulfill a law that we aren't under? Well, even though we're not under the Mosaic law as, as a direct binding authority... Fulfillment still matters. That's how Christ inaugurated the new covenant that we are under. Romans 1 through 10 taught us that Christ fulfills the law on our behalf. And praise God for that. And now we are united to Christ, though we are not under the law. This new age of fulfillment is on display as we, his people, in Christ, through Christ, and with Christ, love one another. 
Paul says something very similar in Galatians 5, 13 and 14. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Again, not under the law. But then he says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. New Testament scholar Doug Moo says, Christians bring the whole law to its conclusive and intending, intended end by loving others. The whole law aims at doing good to others. And if one loves truly and consistent, consistently, all that the law is aiming at is also accomplished. The Christian is not under the Mosaic law, but as we are under the lordship of Christ, we are under his new covenant. And one of those new covenant laws is love. Love is our calling, church. And oh, how easy it is. And unfortunately, I know from experience how easy it is to be about a lot of good things. I mean, even things like theology, the study of God, and yet miss this love. Theologian Amy Bird says, theology, or anything for that matter, without love is dead. And before we move on to Paul's motivation for love, we need to understand what love is. We've all been influenced by one degree or another by our culture. What love is, according to our culture, is purely emotional, spontaneous, a, a strong feeling within, natural, easy. When Paul says we owe love, Paul has an action in mind, something we do. It's not mainly a warm, fuzzy feeling within. Love is something, according to this text, that you either do or do not do to a neighbor. Easy as that. Though emotions are involved, love is not less than action. And I love this passage. He tells us, love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. What is built into us is a deep desire and love for, well, us. To love your neighbor as yourself, just ask yourself, how would you want to be treated if you were fill in the blank? Go and do likewise. In Paul's rebuke to the Corinthian church for their lack of love, he, he explains to them what love is. In 1 Corinthians 13, we all know this passage. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love is hard work, church. But love is our calling, and if we miss this, we miss everything. Which takes us to our next movement in this passage. Paul, like any legit coach, doesn't leave his team, the church, with the hard work of love without giving them a pep talk, some motivation. So our second movement, living with urgency. Living with urgency. Look at verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Sandwiched in between Paul's exhortations is his motivation. 
Right? A, a couple weeks ago, we saw that the gospel message, apart from ethics, is a truncated gospel message. Yes, we're saved by faith alone, but true, authentic, saving faith is never alone. Salvation and ethics are inseparable. Today, we're going to see that Paul actually links ethics with eschatology. Eschatology. Now, eschatology is a $10 word, but, but, it, but it simply means end times. The final chapter in redemptive history. So, so Paul is going to connect the command to love to his motivation for Christians to look ahead by saying, besides this, you know. He's not bringing in some new teaching. He's not trying to give them some secret end time code that they should spend all their time making charts and predicting the time of, of the Christ's return and who the Antichrist is. Nope. He just reminds them of elementary eschatology. He says, wake up, church. Wake up. Salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Now, when these Christians and us first believed, salvation did come. We learned that in Romans 10, 9, right? Salvation happens when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. But Paul's saying in our passage that there's also a future aspect of this salvation, that this future salvation is nearer now than when we first received our present salvation. What Paul has in mind in this future salvation that ought to motivate our present lives is this. Look at verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Paul's using biblical metaphors here. The night is far gone is this present evil age. The day at hand is the age to come. Paul's telling the church to wake up, to get your eyes on the day of the Lord. It is closer now than when you first believed. And what exactly does this age to come consist of? Jesus' second coming and our redemption, our final redemption. This is the part in redemptive history where we'll be giving glorified bodies like Jesus to reign with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Paul is saying, wake up, rise from your sleep. In other words, staying in context with our passage, do not be conformed to this present evil age. And how do we do that? Paul is now just further explaining what he brought up in chapter 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You wake up by getting your mind fixed on the future. The day of the Lord. And this is not just me and Jesus eschatology. Like my individual salvation to come. No. This future salvation gets our minds and our hearts anticipating the next big event in God's grand plan of redemption. And maybe you're thinking, well, Paul's clearly wrong. He told a group of Christians 2,000 years ago that salvation is nearer to them now than when they first believed. 2,000 years later, they and us are still waiting. 
like when I'm watching the end of a Laker game, which has been extremely hard this year. But, but with two minutes left in the final quarter, I tell Holly, hey, babe, the game's almost over. Only two minutes left. 30 minutes later, she thinks I'm a liar as I'm still watching the game. Like is nearer just a bad translation here? I don't think so. Ultimately, the end is near because this is the next. This is the next big event in God's grand plan of redemption. So even for us, RP, this passage is saying, let's wake up. Let's stop being conformed to the ways of this present evil age. Let's rise from our sleep and let our minds be renewed by the fact that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Amen. Yes. That there is a judgment day ahead of us. And for those whose only hope in life and death is Christ, we will reign with him forever. He calls his church, his bride. There's a future wedding day coming. Like even marriage here and now is only a shadow and a foretaste of this. And and man, don't engaged couples just long for that wedding day? They should. How much more should we, the church, his bride, long for this day? This is our promised, guaranteed future. Imagine if we meditated on this future day, even before we turned on the news or opened up our social media feeds when we woke up. And it's all nearer now than when we first got saved. Do you live like the end is near? Because it is. We spend so much time and energy planning out our future, so focused on the things we can see. And I'm not against, I don't think the Bible's against a retirement plan. But how much time do you spend meditating on the return of Christ and the final redemption of his church? The the consummation of his kingdom where this present evil age will be no more. And for the rest of eternity, forever, life with our triune God, Father, Son, and spirit, along with his people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Martin Luther said, live as if Jesus was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is returning tomorrow. For Paul, in our passage this morning, this future day is the motivation for Christian living today, for our loving of our neighbors And as we'll see in this final movement in Romans 13, living in holiness, living in holiness. Look with me at the middle of verse 12. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So then Paul says in light of what will be, what is just over the horizon Live the future-oriented life now. Live today in light of that day. And remember, night or darkness is this present evil age. Day or light is the age to come. 
cast off the works of darkness. Paul is saying again, don't let the pull of culture, our fleshly desires, or worldly influences conform you. Cast it off and instead put on the armor of light. All that pertains to the age to come, the day of the Lord, dress for that day today. One Romans commentary, I think, hit it on the nail when he said, um, Paul calls on believers to discard anything that is inappropriate for them and to dress themselves with the apparel of a soldier waiting to be inspected by a returning king. Let's keep reading verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. When you live your life in light of what is to come, Paul says here, here's what it doesn't look like. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality. Michael Bird says, Greco-Roman parties would make a frat house toga party look like a monastery in comparison. So Paul is saying to this church in Rome that yes, you live in a crooked and perverse generation, but do not let the world live in you. And this text begs us to ask ourselves, what sins are you most tempted with? What sins are you most, most tempted with? Maybe an orgy and getting smashed drunk isn't your sin of choice. Maybe it is. But where does your phone lead you? Or where are you or who are you when you think nobody is watching you? What are the idols in your heart springing up trying to rob God of his supremacy over your life? We all have them. Or do you find yourself being conformed to this present evil age? Paul says, cast it off. Kill it. Paul also lists quarreling and jealousy as sins to flee. Quarreling, strong, heated disagreements, arguments. I mean, how do we live in 2022 without doing this, right? This is the air we breathe and then there's jealousy. Yikes. This was written before Instagram and Facebook. We might just have to, I don't know, we might have to delete our social media accounts to follow this command. And finally, Paul ends this section with one final and I think encouraging exhortation. He says, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul is serious about sin, but is he just another radical disciple like Jonathan Edwards and Evan Howard inspiring for sure, but maybe a little weird, a little intense, just like rest in the gospel, Paul, come on. Well, according to Paul, this is what resting in the gospel looks like. We kill sin or it will kill us like one Puritan said. And it's not just killing sin. He says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul is saying a future oriented life is a holy life. A life set apart to God. Where we kill even the, the things that may tempt us to sin. Because on this side of that future day, we realize if we give sin an inch, 
it'll take a mile. And left unconfessed and unfought leads to death. And in all this fighting against being conformed to this present evil age, this casting off, Paul in the positive says, but put on, put on the Lord Jesus. How in the world does one do this? Is this an appeal for Christian apparel? I hope not. How how do we put on Jesus? If you're a follower of him, I think you already have. Galatians 3.27, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Past tense. Here's the doctrine of union with Christ again. The gospel or the good news of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension is that through repentance and faith in Jesus, you have put on Christ. You in Christ, Christ in or on you. All the benefits of who Christ is are yours. I'll say that one again. Maybe the coffee wasn't strong enough. All the benefits of who Christ is are yours. Yes. (laughs) Put on Christ is another way of saying, remember who you now are. It is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives through us, in us, on us. Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh, Paul says. And don't get it twisted. It's not some, it's some holy discipline life that, that brings you to Christ. I hope nobody is hearing me say that. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But as we put on Christ through faith, a holy, set-apart life will follow. Charles Spurgeon said, holiness is not the way to Christ, but Christ is the way to holiness. So again, as I close, the the question remains, do you live like the end is near? Do you go about your days focused on that day? That is what this text is calling us to this morning, to live the future-oriented life. Try it this week. Before you tackle your day, think about what is coming or or rather think about who is coming back live in light of that day the lifestyle of, of of evan howard on the airplane and jonathan edwards are quite inspiring but we don't have to become a monk or one of the world's greatest theologians of our time to to, to have people around us Notice there's something different about us. John Calvin used to encourage ordinary members in his church, ordinary members in his church to live with one foot raised. He would say, live with one foot raised. Imagine if you truly lived your life with the future in mind, not the five-year plan, not the 10-year plan, the forever plan. I've heard it said to be so heavenly minded is no earthly good. I truly believe that only when we are heavenly minded 
or, or, or future-oriented, can we be any earthly good for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that has saved us, called us apart, set us apart as your people. God, thank you that you don't leave us there. You tell us how to live. Lord, by your spirit, help us as a church in Parker, Colorado, 2022, to live with that day, the day of Christ's return. Resurrection. Help us to live a future-oriented life now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.